This is Matterall from Talking in Stations. Thanks for tuning in every week and listening to our programs. We love making them, and we're glad to see there's an audience for them. I would also like to take a second to thank our supporters on Patreon. Without them, we wouldn't be able to buy equipment to improve the show. Really appreciate that sacrifice that you make. program is a conversation between Stephen Mesner, a PC gamer, Andrew Groen, writer who wrote The Empires of Eve, and Rick, aka Carneros, producer and developer for MMO-style games. In this episode of Conversations, we talk about virtual worlds and how the media covers them, and if they should. And by media, we mean magazines and authors and in-game news as well. If you want to see the video version of this conversation, you can find that on TalkingInStations.com. And now for the two-hour discussion on media and virtual worlds. Let's start with introductions, and we'll just go around the clock and start with Rick uh, Carneros. Hi, my name is Rick, or Carneros, if we're in-game. Uh, I, I run The Bastion in EVE Online, but I play other video games in uh, all virtual worlds. I only play games that are virtual worlds. And I am a game dev in my daily life, and I, uh, about three quarters of the time, I, my game dev is virtual worlds as well. What were some of the game dev stuff you did though? I've worked on EverQuest, EverQuest 2, Meridian 59, if you remember the older ones. Uh, I've worked on Age of Conan, EVE Online. I did a little bit on Rift. Uh, probably several others that I'm not remembering at the moment. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so I'm David and, uh, my background is, um, I studied like, I'm going back to college guys. I studied, uh, Roman history in college and I usually the society level of history. Cause I was really interested in how people treated themselves when they're so far apart, you know, like, uh, as far as aristocrats and the plebes and stuff like that, uh, which totally prepared me to work in Hollywood which I did, uh, making movies for a while, and then ended up uh, becoming a marketer of films. So I was a movie poster designer for about 10 years uh, before you know, I grew older and less sexy. Then I had to retire into an advertising firm uh, doing technology and stuff like that. But I give you all that because it kind of informs like the way I approach EVE Online and the way I look at it and stuff like that, and these virtual worlds too. Andrew? So yeah, uh, my name is Andrew Gruen. Uh, I'm the author of, uh, I guess now, a, a series of books about EVE Online uh, concerning sort of the grand drama that happens out in, in, in Nelsec. 
my first book was Empires of Eve, uh, Volume One, came out a couple of years ago, and was basically the story of Eve Online from its launch in 2003 all the way up to the end of, you know, what people kind of call the Great War between Bob and Goons uh, in 2009. And so a couple of months ago, I funded a sequel, uh, Volume Empires of Eve, Volume Two, on Kickstarter, uh, which is going to bring the story kind of not quite up to date, but a lot further along uh, in the Eve Online timeline. I kind of covered the story from the end of the Great War up into uh, World War B in 2016. So covering from like 2009 up to 2016. And so that's what I'm researching right now. It's a, a huge topic. I'm in the middle of doing a, a series of probably like 80 to 100 different interviews uh, on this particular topic. Um, Prior to that, I was a journalist. I went to journalism school and worked mostly in the video game enthusiast press for from like 2009 to 2014 when my first Kickstarter was. Um, and yeah, I've, uh, ever since 2014, I've been, I've been studying Eve and, and making books about Eve. And it's, it, it's been uh, an amazing community to, to study over the last few years. Uh, it never ceases to be fun to just sort of sit down and read things that happen in the community or sit down and, and try to translate things that aren't yet stories into a, an intelligible story for people to follow. It's, it's a really, really fun topic. Yeah. I loved volume one. I, I enjoyed it twice in, in text and once in audio all the way through, loved it. Thank you, I have no idea how to respond to that besides thank you. <laughs> Steven? Yeah, um, I'm Steven Messner. I'm PC Gamer's senior reporter. Um, and I've been writing about video games for a couple of years now, uh, more specifically focusing on uh, a common theme among all of us, online worlds. So I first started getting um, uh, recognized, I guess you could say, when writing about EVE Online as a very young reporter. And uh, I eventually uh, have moved up to join PC Gamer as their senior reporter and I continue to cover events like wars and stuff like that happening EVE Online and even doing profiles on specific players, but then also broadening that out into World of Warcraft and other MMOs and then sandbox survival games, those kinds of things. But yeah, uh, sort of virtual world storytelling is one of my main beats, so. Man, we're in the right place. <laughs> All right, well, let's kick this off. Um, we wanna talk about uh, what it is to, to write about virtual worlds and kind of specifically Eve, right? Because a few of us are really tied to that game. It's also a very interesting place. Um, but I guess we'll just start with the first question about the more background on us is uh, what was the first uh, virtual world that caught your eye or your imagination? If, if you can think back, anyone can take it. I think for me, like, honestly, this is probably like the cliche answer, but it was probably World of Warcraft was the first time that I got like really enamored with um, an online world. I'd played like RuneScape before then, but I think RuneScape was more like this visceral, I was just addicted to leveling up. Um, world of Warcraft was like really when I was like, this is like a virtual space that I occupy as a character and became really obsessed with sort of um, that existence and the, the social connections that happen within it and, and meeting people and making friends and, and sort of, you know, developing those, those relationships. Um, and I think for World of Warcraft, it was just because of the sheer, um, um, 
how vivid it was. Like that was one of the first MMOs that was like beautiful, accessible, and had like this massive detailed world that wasn't, you know, really hard to get into or really old looking. So it was just sort of this amazing cross section of, of a bunch of things, which is why no surprise, it became like the biggest MMO ever. Yeah. That's like, it's easy. It's like saying, I like Jesus, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> who's going to disagree with that? Like, yeah, yeah, totally. It's like going to the Bible Belt and asking yeah. people what their religion is. Yeah, like, exactly. You're, yeah. you're going to get one answer. <laughs> well, it's amazing that like one of the things that I think people forget about really frequently is that EVE Online is actually a contemporary of World of Warcraft. It only really came out maybe a year, a year and a half prior to it. And it's really, really amazing to consider how the two games have had similar or non-similar trajectories as they both sort of the very rare game that has actually survived that, that big MMO boom that happened in the early 2000s. It's interesting to consider perhaps that they're, you know, two sides of the same coin uh, in virtual world experiences. Totally. I always got fascinated by thinking like the design philosophy in EVE Online and then um, it, World of Warcraft is so notable to me because you look at the MMO genre and there's like this clear moment where like, MMOs before World of Warcraft were all really unique. They had their own ideas. They had, and sometimes those ideas were terrible, but they had their own ideas. <laughs> and then World of Warcraft came out and everything since then, um, for, the, for a large part, obviously, I can't speak for every game, but most of the games that came out were just trying to recreate World of Warcraft, but like, no, this one has Star Wars. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's always fascinated me. Yeah, they must have been like... Uh... I don't know, Rick, were they, what was it like back then? Were they looking for IPs to kind of say, I think we can put a game on top of this? Um, depends what time frame you're talking about. If you go back to what he just described as 2000, before, 2003, after World of Warcraft, before World of Warcraft, the, these people weren't very much talking to each other. Now, the people who worked on Ultima Online and EverQuest did pop in sometimes into Meridian 59 and would occasionally say things in global chat, like, I'm working on a video game and it's gonna be better than this. And they'd say things, <laughs> they, they had some exposure to each other, but they weren't, they weren't really comparing ideas and they were all thinking individually. And, and in these days, uh, the games looked a little bit more different and uh, I, I agree. They, they didn't share as many uh, traits in common and they hadn't adopted any common uh, uh, symbolism or, or, or visual shape language or anything. They just each did their own thing. Uh, Meridian 59 was the first world I ever got really hooked on. Uh, it was the first time I took a week of vacation just to stay home and play a game for seven days straight without any interruption. It was, it was, uh, and I, it was an, an amazing moment for me. Uh, and after that, I decided I want to work on these games. I don't care about the rest. Sometimes I have to do other games to pay the bills, but that's when you were always like, with the MMOs. With the MMOs? Why, why the MMOs though? Because it took me to a place a little bit similar to reading a really good novel where it takes me to a place and I, and I'm not trying to escape another place. I'm trying to also enjoy this other really cool place. And I can be two people at the same time. And that's allowed. And one yeah. of them has superpowers probably. 
<laughs> it's just like there's an audacity to that genre that isn't really anywhere else in gaming, right? Like this this concept of, of like we're going to get a thousand or so people and throw them onto this persistent server together. Um, and like in EVE Online's case, we're going to get far more than that. We're going to get hundreds of thousands of people. We're going to throw them on a server together and then we're going to make them shoot each other. Um, but yeah, like you just don't see that anywhere else. And I think that's part of what is just so compelling about sort of the, the pitch of, of MMOs. Yeah. Well, it's, it's super compelling because and the, the pitch of MMOs to me has always been that it's the largest possibility space for humans inside of it to express themselves and to have the most possible vectors of, ex of expressing themselves and in order to you know, get some portion of themselves into an online space. And EVE Online is, is the, the most, like the highest degree of freedom. Whatever alchemy lies in the game design, with the, the highest degree of freedom and the most ability to express your humanity comes through that game. And it almost feels to me like, and I, I, I linger on World of Warcraft because this was actually my answer as well, like World of Warcraft is absolutely the first game that, um, that captured my attention and made me stay up, you know, till four o'clock in the morning, just sort of existing in that place. And, you know, I would stay logged in just on a separate monitor just to stand by the auction house mailbox. And just as soon as something sell, sold on the auction house, I'd get my money and then go do whatever it was that I needed to do with that money. You know, just constantly living this, like, this life alongside of your own life, not like an escapist thing like completely, but just sort of like having this thing that you slip into every 25 minutes or so has always been a persistent way that I play video games. Um, but the thing about World of Warcraft that I always find so interesting is it does seem like it's kind of like this, this choke point moment where in the back, like, it, it seems like this choke point moment where in MMOs decided to stop heeding the lessons that they learned in the 90s about MMOs and became about something, trying to get at something like uh, more sanitized and pure. And EVE Online was the the torchbearer for that old style of, of MMO, and it still is to this day, and I think that's why people are being drawn to it. And I almost wonder if it's as a result of, of continuing to bear that torch of the old style of MMOs pre-World of Warcraft that Eve continues to survive to this day and actually may have brighter days beyond this um, because it harkens back to something that just doesn't exist anymore and that you cannot get in any other, in any other PC gaming experience. So you were talking about the sandbox thing where you can do anything you want. Cause that, I think that's what drew me into um, my first experience was sitting in an office going through like time magazine and all these magazines were all old. And it, it was, I find this little thing and I was like, is that star Wars? And it was star Wars galaxies, but it was an MMO that it was announcing and it showed some guy hunting, you know, big game. And I thought, you can go hunting. <laughs> and then it described that you could go to a different planet and go hunting. And these places were huge. And I thought, Oh, that's really interesting. I'll have to remember that. And then I totally forgot. Uh, and then I came to work uh, at this uh, agency that I'm at now. So I was like 16 years ago. I forget how many, 18 years ago or whatever. And these guys were playing it. They're like, do you want to play this game with us? And I was like, sure. And I turned it on and it was like a slideshow of uh, lag. And I thought, oh, this game just isn't even, this is just not even playable. But then, uh, uh, you know, I kept at it for a week or two and then I started to really feel the freedom to do stuff uh, and to, op I think for me, it was to optimize things so that I could, 
I, I had stuff and I could put that stuff together and it could create a third thing. And it was just like baking almost. Uh, mm. Uh, so there was a lot of possibility and then you could go hunt and, and take the hide off a creature and then make that into something else. And it just started to, it, it all started to really grow on me. The, it was the world of, the world of possibilities. That's what, that's what did it for me. And when that game was dying, I kept looking at Eve for since like 2006 and I was like, I don't have a body. I can't relate. Like I, I, I you know, I'm not a, I don't relate to being a ship. But then finally, I read uh, a friend of mine just kept drilling me like every month, like you got to do Eve. Eve matters. Like that's where things matter. You can be good at PvP in this game, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and I didn't know what he meant. And then I read uh, Murder Incorporated, I think. And that's when I was like, oh, I think I get it. This is beyond, like, this is like beyond. So I need to try that. And then I ended up uh, coming over slowly just very cautiously at first and i literally wanted to find something that didn't take up a lot of time so there's two things i was looking at one is an established game that's already got its niche that isn't competing for numbers and so people don't say it's dying all the time that was what i was looking for right <laughs> i was looking to get away from people saying this game is dying and then the second thing was somewhere where i was a small fry and this whole world was going on above me that i just could be connected to but not really participate in because I didn't have the bandwidth to do it. Uh, and, and in retrospect, I think what I was looking for was the, the potential gameplay was enough to satisfy like uh, my um, reward system. Like I just need the potential to play. So I have to accumulate skill points for the potential to play. I have to accumulate wealth for the potential to, to do something significant, but I never did anything significant, but it was just accumulating that possibility. So don't need to, you don't need to do something to get the reward. The reward is inherent in the motivation of just having the potential to do it. Right. I think that's like you're kind of tapping into what a lot of people don't like about World of Warcraft these days, which is World of Warcraft these days. And I mean, even back then. Um, but it was a game that was designed to make you feel powerful. Um, and in a lot of ways, it gave you that power you didn't necessarily earn it. Um, a good example of that is like in the most recent expansion, um, Legion, they gave players what they called artifact weapons and artifact weapons were basically like the weapons of lore from this universe that people had been reading about and, and you know, coveting for decades. And they just handed them to you in like the first 10 minutes of the expansion pack. And I think a lot of people, especially sort of more lore or story-minded players, really took issue with that because it was kind of like, imagine... Um, just one day logging into a Star Wars MMO. And I guess this is the problem with the Old Republic, which is the other big Star Wars MMO. But it's like playing that game and you just get to be a Jedi. And it's like, I don't want to just be a Jedi. I want to like train. <laughs> I want to like have to, I want to endure the journey to become the Jedi. Yeah. That's what's appealing to me. Yeah, um, I think there's definitely something in the MMO genre in which you have to earn what you get. And that's why like the stickiness of Eve is so strong is because not only are you earning it, but every step you have to go through somebody else to get there. Right. And yeah, also, it's not earning, it's taking. Yeah, they're also, they're, they're backsliding you or they're washing you down a little bit because they, they kill you and set you back a little while, you know? So it's, it's a real struggle to kind of get forward because you're constantly being, seeing setbacks either by scams or by being ganked or by just fighting and attrition and stuff like that. But it's, right. it's not a linear progression or a thing, you know, it's just a matter of putting in your time. 
You can put in your time for a long time and it can all go away tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And like MMO, like the modern MMO design now is like, you never really can get set back to square zero. Um, and then the second thing is like that power is arbitrary because the goalposts are always moving. The most powerful weapon today becomes uh, useless in the next, you know, five years or the next expansion. Whereas Eve Online, you own a Titan. That Titan is going to always be relevant within a certain, within a certain context. Or, you know, if you own uh, any kind of ship, really, um, it's, 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 it's always powerful. <laughs> it's never going to be negated necessarily. I, uh, a friend of mine was, uh, did the Eve News 24 podcast for a while. A friend of mine said, like, Titans don't get you girls, man. It, it doesn't work. I was like, really? Does it, doesn't, it doesn't have that cachet? It's like, no. But, <laughs> it, is, but it is relevant in other ways. But yeah, right. it's not a Cadillac or whatever. Well, uh, never could be. Metterall has one. I have three. What? Oh, Titans? Yeah. I have two. Two? Wow. Take nice. that. Nice. Okay. Yeah. One's in the garage. I got to stay ahead. <laughs> I don't think I I've flown. A, I don't think I've flown a battleship in Eve Online. Like that's. Oh. I'm purely subcap. <laughs> it occurred to me at one point to uh, liquidate everything above a battleship and really just stick with that gameplay because it is different. And uh, and the battleship to me has always been the zenith of like, you know, combat. Uh, for Eve, at least in the beginning years. I don't know if Andrew agrees with this, but the battleship was kind of like the signature workhorse that did it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, there was like, there, there were times when it's, it's, it's impossible for people to really remember or even comprehend anymore, but there was times when the amount of battleships you had in fleet was like, can determine who controlled Nelsec because somebody had 11 battleships instead of three battleships <laughs> in their alliance, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it's funny. We'll talk about Eve history a little bit later too, but, uh, somebody compared it to, somebody compared it to Counter-Strike and, and that's what Eve was like when it first started out. And it was like, you know, you're 12 guys against, you know, another 15 guys. It was very small compared to what it is now. I remember when my first Titan died, I was working, uh, for Sony online entertainment. And I got home and I wrote this email to my boss about the experience and what it felt like and, and tried to communicate to other game devs what the experience is like to lose a Titan in Eve. Uh, and I put my heart into this email and sent it off. And he said, the rest of the company needs to read this. And he just forwarded it to the whole company. And it was Matterall's alliance that killed that first time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're still friends. Yeah. What do you think they took from that experience that they wrote about? That, that uh, I will remember that ship for the rest of my life. And uh, it, uh, a part of me uh, still is still sitting in that bridge. It's interesting. I was still in that moment in comms, uh, uh, quietly talking to people about how I might be able to get out of it and how my shields are holding and how my cap's holding and stuff. It was, a, it was an amazing experience and uh, I can still taste the emotion if I stop and think about it. Were you panicked when it was happening or were you calm? I was as calm and cool as this. 
And they, and they were actually a little bit surprised. I'm like, Shields at 87%. And we're, because panicking's not going to help. You know, you can get emotional. Dude, I panic. I, uh, I slammed it. I slammed my fist on the table. Uh, I think I hurt myself doing that. And I like, I oh, no, get up no. out of my chair in, in an aggressive way. No. No. Rick, did you, did you get emotional after it happened? Like once you kind of stepped away from the situation? Yeah, then I felt lost. Yeah. Yeah. But it's got to oh, be go calm. In it. You have to be calm during a crisis. At least right. that's how I'm wired. Right. It's so interesting to me that like, you were saying that and it, it, I was thinking like, man, you know, what's crazy is I actually can still remember the first time I died in EVE Online. Yep. Um, it was just in a destroyer. Um, or I guess the first time I was killed by another player. I'm yeah. sure I might have bitten the dust earlier than that. But like the first time I was killed by another player, I remember that moment. Um, and that was years ago. But like, I don't remember the first time I died in World of Warcraft. Actually, I don't can't really pinpoint a lot of firsts in world of warcraft they they go as much as i love that game they go in one year and right out the other um they do not stick to memory per se and i, I know that there are people who probably do have moments of world of warcraft that were meaningful but um i think for the average player there's just not a whole lot of that whereas like in eve online i i remember specifically the emotion i felt losing my destroyer the frustration the anger the being like I now just have no money. <laughs> like I, I quit the game actually. And I, I didn't go back for like six months. Um, and even like RuneScape, the first time that, that was the MMO I said I was playing earlier, like the first time I died in PVP and lost all my armor was just this like devastating moment that really has left an impression on me. Um, and I think that's really telling about these types of games and the power that these virtual worlds can have. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've been writing about personally quite a bit lately, the experience of loss inside of virtual environments and, and the fact that if you, if you actually listen to people, what they tell you is that within these places, they're experiencing some of the most memorable moments of their lives, and not all of them are necessarily good. Like, a lot of them hurt to think about. A lot of them are genuinely tragic moments, and I'm trying to uh, kind of get to the middle of of where that sense of loss comes from and explore the depths of where loss can go to in a game like Eve. Like I was talking, I did an interview with Pro God Legend, a uh, very famous Eve Online FC, for those of you who are not aware, um, uh, about his experience in, in Eve Online. We talked about the experience of being, um, you know, a, a fleet commander at the very top level, not even just a fleet commander, but a fleet commander of fleet commanders. And the the tremendously rare experience that somebody like that has in which when they lose, they might lose that form of gameplay forever. You know, the, the stakes are so high for people at the very, very top level because they're, they're worried that may, they may never get to play their game of EVE Online ever again if they're proven to be foolish or they're proven to be untrustworthy or they don't have people's loyalty for whatever reason anymore. They can end up never being able to do that kind of stuff again. And I think that that Part of partially that is what drives the grand drama of Eve Online because the people at the top want to stay at the top because that game at the top is like the most high stakes game of like risk poker you could possibly imagine and it's the most it, it has to be one of the, the grandest adrenaline highs that you can get out of online gaming and and I think that it's driven by that sense of fear and loss of losing that that game and I think it's the same kind of loss as losing your destroyer because you're afraid of losing your ability to function within this world because as you mentioned you ran out of money you had no money left and you couldn't enjoy the video game anymore so everybody is at risk of losing their video game 
in, in EVE. And I think that's one of the things that drives uh, the tremendous passion that goes on within it. I have had some really memorable moments in World of Warcraft, though. I can remember the first time I went on a raid into Molten Core during Vanilla WoW. And then I can remember years later, um, I'm in a different raid, and we've just cleared Ulduar in Wrath of the Lich King. And a, a shard, a legendary shard fragment has dropped on the last boss of Ulduar. And the, the leaders of the guild have been kibitzing for 15 or 20 minutes quietly in a channel about what they're going to do about this one shard because they can't share it. Um, they can only give it to one person. And then after about 15 or 20 minutes, there's this clink sound in my bag. And someone had a uh, 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 master loot delivered it to, to my uh, bag. And there was like a gasp from the rest of the raid. And they all said, oh, wow, you gave it to Storm. Wow, cool. And, and uh, I was shocked because I was not the best healer in the group. But they gave it to me because I was loyal and had been there and had, and had a good attitude and just kept coming. Uh, and, uh, and we ended up being the second uh, guild on Cenarius to get the Hammer of Valineer legendary. So I had that experience of getting the legendary the, the hard, old-fashioned way where you had to clear it over and over again. And then for the final boss, you had to... At the right moment in phase three, you had to throw the hammer into his mouth and then kill him, but and, and then go and pick it up out of his corpse afterwards and to get the final hammer and all this. It was it was a pain in the neck. And I'll remember that for the rest of my life too. And the bonds that it made with the rest of uh, the raiding guild were such that later in the future, in the next expansion, um, and I had gone to work for CCP and I'm living in Reykjavik, Iceland. And I'm having to get up at two o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays and raid until six in the morning with my guild in California because I had the hammer of Valineer. And it was the only legendary in the, in the group. And I had to help and do my part um, and then go to work after that. It was crazy. So you felt that vir virtual, virtual responsibility? Yeah, the bonds with the team. Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's actually a conversation that reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, an EVE Online Alliance leader relatively recently, or actually multiple conversations I've had with EVE Online Alliance leaders recently in which they talk about kind of wanting to be able to quit the game, but knowing what will happen to their corporation or their alliance if they do and there's that it's that similar that that virtual world responsibility that you just talked about where you had been given something and now you felt like you felt a real personal sense of needing to own up to what you had been given what you had been entrusted with and not carry the guilt of absconding with all of your teammates hard work uh, immediately afterward and i think that a lot of a lot of people in even might feel really similarly and end up with a similar experience uh, that's very interesting. I feel the same way about talking in stations. I've been wanting to walk away for a year. <laughs> like, I feel like, oh, this is like too much of my life. And then I keep, ask Carneros, I keep trying to hand it to people saying, you want to do this? You want to take it? Um, but 
it is weird that you, I don't feel like it actually, I can do it. Um, one second. No, I don't think you uh, can either. Yeah. Well, well and, and this is loss and fear of what, what can happen if you, if you don't show up, like these are real emotions, right? Well, I think yeah. it's fear of who you are if you don't show up. It, it, it's fear of carrying that, uh, of carrying your self-judgment with you ever afterward, knowing that you caved to a bully or you gave up to exhaustion and feelings like that. Those are the ones that really matter because those are the ones that really scar on your mind. Uh, Stephen, you were going to say something. I'm sorry I interrupted. No, that's okay. I was All I was going to say, uh, yeah, like my perspective on it would be like, you know, it's no different than... Um, uh, I quit a job one time and I, I like I walked out and it was an awful job. Don't get me wrong. Um, it was so bad. And it eventually like I hated the management so much that I just I stormed out one day and said like I'm done with this. Um, but that weekend was like Thanksgiving weekend and it was a really busy time for like all of my sort of coworkers. And I remember this like really tangible feeling of guilt in sort of like leaving these people behind because I was doing what was right for myself. And I think that's just like a natural um, instinct for humans. We're a social species. We want, like, our, our instinct is to work together. And so no different than quitting a job and feeling this sense of, like, I'm abandoning these people who care about me or I'm, I'm you know, making things worse for this group. MMOs have done a really good job of, of creating that same sense of responsibility, which is, like, I'm walking away and I'm hurting the group. And nobody wants to be that person. Um, nobody wants to be no one wants to think about the fact that people might be like grumbling when they say their name, even if they understand why they left and had to leave. I think there's always just that feeling of it's hard to let go. Um, and, and, and feeling like you're leaving this group that you care about and invest so much time in, in a worse place. And that's just like a really weird thing. Um, I remember like I've had a few times I'm playing an online game and uh, like my partner will be like, Hey, can you come help me with like dinner or something? And I'm like, Oh, I can't, I can't pause this. Uh, and she's not a gamer. So I had to like explain it to her. And I was like, no, like I can't pause this, but I'm playing this multiplayer game and these people are actually relying on me. And if I leave now, cause she was like, well, can't you just leave? And I was like, well, if I do, then like that kind of makes me a jerk and like, I don't want to feel like a jerk. So like, can you just wait? <laughs> it's like, it's such a weird conversation to be like, no, sorry, my virtual, my virtual friends need me right now. <laughs> they're real people. But, but they're real I, people, yeah. But that's what I hear. My wife's like, those aren't your friends. You know, your friends are here in real life. And I, and I was like, I don't think you understand. They're actual people. But, and it does feel weird when somebody uh, gets fired from a job. You're like, oh, but I wanted to tell them so much. You know, they're gone now. Like, it's almost like they're dead even though they're not, and they probably go on to better things. And it's kind of the same in this place too. So there's another parallel. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. I mean, I, uh, one of the things that I, that I find uh, recurring in, in my own personal work when it comes to EVE Online is, um, you know, what does it mean when some alliance gets beaten and is dispersed? You know, that really like, that's the kind of thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about because all those people still have that same sense of loss. That, that social network was a, a special thing that was created one time and can never really be put back together again. And so when Eve alliances war against each other, and a lot of times those more ruthless tactics get involved and they end up you know, using spies and misinformation and things like that, or starting fights inside of each other's alliances in order to like fray at each other's social bonds, there's a real violence to what goes on in, in some of these wars. And I find that to be 
wholly fascinating because they're, they're physically trying to create these senses of loss and frustration and to break human relationships in, in a, a, real, a real way that I, I want to use the word violence, but it seems crazy to use, to use the word violence. But at the same time, you want, it seems like it is. Like a psychological it's, warfare? Yeah, it's social it, it violence. Is. It is. We use the word psychological warfare, but at the same time, like, it's a real kind where you're actually trying to break people's friendships and you're trying to, you know, I, I did an interview one time with a guy who was a fleet commander who used to fight against Sermole back in the old days of Deep Online. And he told me this story about how he used to have a spy inside of Sermole's fleet and the spy would record fleet comms of Sermole fighting against this fleet commander. And he would study it for what he was doing when Sermole got the maddest, got the most angry and upset. And then he would continually, he would hit that nerve over and over and over again. And that, that was the way that he chose to fight that person. And I found that to just be the most mind-blowingly fascinating thing because take that to its extent, that's almost an innocent example where it's like purely within the bounds of gameplay, but you can follow that, that thread to a logical conclusion that is like uh, pretty, pretty intense. I, I've uh, had the experience of losing a war and uh, taking a big hit. There was a recent big war that some call the Casino War and others call World War B. And uh, my alliance was on the losing side. And it was like going through a crucible. We were probably between 40 and 50% of our previous size at the end of the war. And then we had to make a great journey to a far land and take some more space to go and live in. Uh, and we looked at each other and we had this feeling of, okay, here we are the ones who will stick with this alliance and stick with you, Rick, uh, through hard times. And it doesn't matter if we lose the next war, we're going to still stick with you. And um, when others of them started to come back and rejoin us that had been with us the year before. And uh, once we became reestablished, some of the ones that made it through the war looked at those ones and said, ah, they'll leave you again on the next war. I won't. And it was, it was a really amazing, interesting, strange feeling. As a CEO, do you find that people play against each other towards you like wanting a favorite son status is that some people need attention uh some people are higher maintenance than others but um usually they're happy if they just have a private conversation going with me on the side with uh, occasional pithy comments um do do they occasionally they do say you know, I like you better than he does and stuff like that. A, a little bit of that going on, but it's not. I, just, I wonder about like, because we're like packs, right? Wolf packs and there's behavior involved and there's alphas and there's betas and then there's jockeying for position. And then there's the opposite too. The guilt that you feel when your guys are living out of a refugee center and a camp along the side of the road and they don't have anywhere to rat and they don't have anywhere to mine and you're trying to take care of them uh, and keep, it's very Battlestar Galactica. You've got a, a flotilla of refugee ships and you're trying to protect them and move through the galaxy and keep them fed and keep them, their accounts active and paid for. 
you know, and you're trying to, you know, I had to, I had to sell a NYX to SRP one to cover SRP one month ship replacement program. You know, I have to, I would, if someone got stuck for, for money, I would quietly give some out of my pocket and then go buy more Plex. That's what you did. I spent fortune on Plex during the casino war. Just holding it together. Yeah. And just trying to keep everyone happy. There, there are other uh, alliances that are led by a great admiral or, or a great warlord of some sort. And, and there's some that are led by great politicians. I'm just, I just, I'm the one who stepped up to take care of these people as a family and I take care of them and I care for them and that's my job. And so I'm sort of the cook and the cleaner and the helper and the one who puts band-aids on stuff. And somehow that ended up making me the leader. I don't really understand it. Wild. <laughs> well, so there's, there's these emotions of fear and responsibility on, on the one side. Uh, on the other side, the exhilaration, not just EVE Online, but we're talking about like games like Second Life where you can explore variations of, you can simulate life, right? Like uh, you wanting to build stuff, you can. I, I didn't play that game for very long, but I mean, you can become an animal, right? You, put, you, you start to, you become a furry and then you have sex as a furry. And then you can hire, uh, you know, people to be in your gang or you can, it's just like a whole range of exhilarations that you can explore. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Uh, is, is, do you think it's in equal proportions or do you think there's dom a certain dominant feeling or strata of feeling that people get in virtual worlds? I think it like depends. What's interesting about like you pointing out Second Life is that when you look at sort of the genre holistically, um, each MMO kind of offers people a different um, space of feelings that they that they can like pursue. So I think like people gravitate towards Eve Online because there's a small niche of of gamers who love the risk, they love the exhilaration, and they love the cause and effect. Right, um, and they like that—that that sort of uh, survival of the fittest competition—and that's really appealing to them. I think that there are certain people who gravitate towards World of Warcraft because they like the constant feeling of achievement. They like the fantasy of being powerful. Um, and then I think with Second Life, it's almost like something else entirely, which is that there are people who want the yeah. Second Life is so interesting because it's so much more nuanced than any other virtual world um, because it kind of has a little bit of everything. There's people who want to have their um, sort of fantasy role playing as like heroes, but then there's also people that just want to meet up and they just want to get busy, you know, doing dirty things to one another. Um, <laughs> well, sex is in the brain, isn't it? Yeah. And like, you know, it makes perfect sense. Like um, it, it was funny though. Like one of the things I've been thinking a lot about actually lately, <laughs> I hope I'm, this is an okay tangent. Please remove it. <laughs> no, I love this tangent. Let's not. go. But I, I got really obsessed with the origins of cyber sex and like, when was this a thing? And so actually it was Meridian 59. I was talking to, I'd have to pull up his name now. Um, but one of the original developers for Meridian 59 
this was so funny, but he retweeted Paris Hilton because Paris Hilton tweeted one day uh, and she said, tell me something I don't know. And so he tweeted at her and said, uh, uh, it, within an hour of Meridian 59 first becoming a live service, there was already a player who was um, selling sex for gold. They were basically saying like, pay me money and I'll, I'll cyber you in the game. And so he's like, so not only is prostitution the oldest profession in the real world, it's also the oldest profession in the virtual world too. Uh, and that just like triggered this whole obsession with me. Where I'm like, I need to figure out like why. <laughs> but uh, I think it, it's, that's kind of the beauty of the internet is it lets you kind of outsource and explore things in a vacuum. Um, you get to control those things. You can have a sexual experience in the internet and you can turn it off whenever you want. Um, whereas in the real world, a lot of that stuff's a lot more messy. Yeah, honestly, it honestly makes no sense why you can't have sex in MMOs. It just doesn't. Like, you should be able to have sex in MMOs. You just should. Yeah. Like, it, it, I, why is it's not a joke. Like, you should, like, people would love that. And that's all there is to it. Like, people people do. Like, there's, I think every MMO is probably, it's safe to say that there's a, an, an erotic role play community. I don't know about EVE Online personally, but like, well, there's um, many women in EVE Online, but I guess <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, this is 2018. You don't necessarily need women. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are totally okay with EVE Online being 100%. Like, yeah. uh, they, you'd have to, as a game dev, I would say that you, you'd have to make a different version for China. Um, oh, interesting. You, but, you know, that's not an insurmountable obstacle. Uh, there are a couple I, things. That I feel like you'd run into problems with the ESRB too, wouldn't you? Because there's one thing to say: online interactions. Are. What's that? Depends how upfront you are on stuff. Right. Because yeah, there, there's sort of that beautiful umbrella that the Electronics Rating and Software Board has created, which is online interactions not rated by the ESRB. Which is like if someone comes up to you and you have cyber sex with them, we can't control that, and we can't. There's no way we could ever rate that. But if you program it as a system in the game, then I think you're you're taking a level of responsibility for those actions that you don't otherwise. But yeah, like World of Warcraft has a flourishing, you know, erotic role play community. And so, you know, whether or not those games should let you have sex, like people are doing it anyway. And I think they're they're happy about it. That's it's funny because it, it I uh, this is not something I think about that often. But one time I was playing. Uh, Star Wars where you have a figure that's running around and there was this friend uh, of a friend's uh, I knew she was female because we talked before I, I know we hadn't met in real life and then she's like hey I, I have this you know come see my new thing because you can design architecture in Star Wars and stuff so I went and looked at her place and it was all decked out and it was decorated and a lot of work went into it and I was like hey this is really cool and then you know she would start like slapping me or something <laughs> some movement in the game and stuff and uh, and i was like all right we're just doing it i'll play along and then next thing i know she's like trying to sit on me and stuff and i was like what is she doing and then there's this whole like you know there's furniture it, basically it was like oh she's trying to like have sex with my character i didn't understand what was going on uh and and then i was like oh okay all right you know i didn't quite get it but um when i left i kind of felt like that was kind of weird. I kind of feel like uh, that was a one night stand <laughs> and uh, it was all virtual. Well, right. yeah, because all that matters is the connection you have with that human being. And if it wasn't a genuine, like intimate connection, then it feels really awkward just as it does in the real world when someone gets in your space and you don't want them in your space. 
Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't have objected, I guess. I just didn't know what was going on. I was too naive about what was happening. I, anyway, I did meet her at, at E3 that same year, and it was kind of a little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> like, but what I love about your story, what I love about your story with that was just the, the way that you were describing that. And if we had removed the context that this was happening in a virtual world, that just sounded like a regular, like you met a friend, she wanted to show you her apartment, and then she started putting the moves on you, and you didn't pick up on it and like that is a story that takes place in the real world every it's happening right now like that takes place all the time and I think that's just so interesting to kind of go back to our point which is that like these emotions that you experience online uh, are weird because they're a little bit abstracted but they're no different they're just as tangible as, as any kind of experience that you have in the real world. Um, the fact that, yeah, you're, you're kind of being like, whoa, what are you doing? Like, well, why is this happening? And you're like, I'm comfortable. Um, I've personally, like, I've done stories on this where I've gone into like erotic role play servers and um, interacted with the locals, I guess is the PG way of putting it. But like, <laughs> it was a deeply uncomfortable experience for me because I, it was, yeah, it was like going to a sex club and being like, oh, like, I, I'd like to like talk first, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? Um, can we get the no? Yeah, can't do that. Yeah, yeah, can we, yeah, can we get to, it, it, She's like, I'm butting my virtual shirt. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. But like, that's, that's a perfect example of how these worlds create experiences uh, where at least when it comes to our brains and the way we process this information, there's no difference yeah. between um, awesome. sort of the, the physical and the virtual in that regard. Back at the game development company, there are regular design meetings where the team working on the game will say, oh, and you know, this setting might be good for cybering too. The players will love that. And oh. they will acknowledge that as in, in many ways as part of the game design and part of the thinking and, and understanding how this game is going to be enjoyed. So they take that into account, huh? Yeah. I think they'd have to because these communities are big. I mean, the World of Warcraft one is huge. There's a whole area dedicated to it. Uh, and it's so well known that it's like, there's no way that they didn't have a conversation about Even it. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but in, in EVE, it's uh, that's just so, it seems so out of place or so foreign in EVE. Maybe because you don't have a body, right? I think it's, so. It's like, oh, you look lovely, my raven. You know, it's, uh, it's just a ship. Uh, but it doesn't, there's no, I guess you need the animation to kind of complete the thought or something. I don't know. Or maybe yeah, I'm, in the wrong, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go join the mining colony like down the road. There is such a thing as text-based erotica. And yeah, uh, I mean, it is. It is, is right. It is text-based primarily. Uh, am I wrong about that? Is it really foreign to Eve or have I just not run into it? Yeah. You, you, well, you don't spend a lot of time in Jita and you don't spend a lot of time talking to the locals in Jita. But if you, if you, um, uh, there, you know, there are, I get, I bet if you look right now, you just went to Jita right now, you would find there are some characters with female names with attractive avatars, with uh, sexually provocative names, that if you whispered them and said hi, if you convoed them and said hi, they would uh, assume you wanted a, a nice conversation and that that is available for an ISK payment. You're kidding. And you have two Titans, so I know you can afford it. 
yeah, I, I could do that all day for like the next five years. Like, like I didn't know that. Uh, that is I wonder how that. lucrative that business is. Yeah. I have no idea about that. It's not the kind of thing that shows up in the, um, uh, the ESI uh, application program interface uh, data, so I can't track it in my security stuff from my alliance. They should put that in the uh, monthly economic report for ESI. <laughs> yeah, there you go. How much money was made in Egypt prostitution. <laughs> well, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's come on. It's, that's a big part of exhilaration, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's a billion dollar industry. Uh, and this is a virtual world where we're playing out our aggressions and our intents, uh, good or bad. Uh, and, and it's so weird. Like it seems that's taboo, but the violence isn't. Uh, it's a little bit strange to me. Right. I guess it depends what circle you roll in. I think that there are very large communities that are like, no, that's fine. You want to like totally mess fine. around and have, yeah. Like I, you know, it, it's just like, if anything, it's kind of a weird holdover from growing up in North American society where that's just been the de facto sort of cultural stance on these kinds of things, which is violence, oh. good, sex, bad. Um, but yeah, like to what you said, like for me, like and part of the reason I think I'm successful at what I, what I do and sort of why I was able to kind of get to where I am today uh, at PC Gamer was just very early on recognizing how emotionally powerful these stories can be. Um, and the fact that even though this is a video game and video games are, you know, a lot of people think of them as very product driven business. It is a product driven business, uh, but a lot of people don't look further than that and realize that like, no, like gamers are, are, are they're online. They're putting exorbitant amounts of time and energy into these games. And they're, they are telling stories that have an emotional human resonance to them. Um, and I think certain games are better at it than others, but like Eve online is a game that again and again and again, proves itself to be capable of telling very emotionally resonant stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you saying that just because like, I get really frustrated sometimes when, uh, you know, the only discussion that we have about a video game is uh, the number of dollars that came back when they put it on the market. You know, like that's the only relevant data point we get back. That's the only like radiation that we're measuring from that game's impact on society. And we don't actually go in and talk to people and understand what's happening to them when they play the game. You know, there, there's such like a, a, like a, maybe it's a, a Silicon Valley focus on big data where we're trying to like focus on just this, this really large numbers that we can try to figure out what's going on with this game. But we don't actually take the, you know, what Steven and I do, which is go in and do the slow work, talking to people one-on-one -on -one for an hour and a half or two hours at a time you know, doing the human work where you're getting them to open up and tell their stories to you and, and get them to talk emotionally about what they're experiencing when they, when they interact with these worlds. Um, and so that is something that I think both Stephen and I's work really focuses on and that I hope the world gets that message from uh, because it, it's just like, to me, it's just a, a, the fault of the media, right? Like the media only cares about the, the money because the, um, 
like the only place where video games show up in the media is during like the dollars and cents section of the business report, right? So they talk about the money that they make and then that's all you ever hear. Mortal Kombat made a billion dollars this weekend or whatever, like that's all they ever actually talk about. And so video gamers themselves also only see video games being talked about by, by major media institutions when they make a lot of money and they only make, make headlines for the money or the number of players who are playing or something like that, but they don't actually get in and understand the human relationships that are being formed and the ways that people's lives are being altered and changed forever through their experiences uh, inside. This right. Game. Sure. The million dollar battle or the, the amount of money that was spent in Eve uh, when something blew up or that's, that's the real world measure. At some point I, I, I feel like it's a way for to give reference to people like this is what it actually means, but they never do take into account what was really at stake there, uh, which wasn't necessarily the investment, maybe partially, but it was the emotional uh, conflict that's going on between these two entities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, I, I honestly, I go back and forth on things like the million dollar battle or the, the $300,000 lost in VTAC R5 RV stuff. Like, um, because the media does cover those things and it's a really effective Trojan horse to get them to then care about the conflict that's going on and to at least hear the story. Uh, and that, that to me almost makes it, makes it worth it to focus on the money in those moments because it is a nice trick that gets people to then learn the rest of the story and learn more about what's going on. And so it, it, it's, you know, that's one of the brilliances of, of Eve and the Eve community that, has, that they have been able to get these things into the headlines by knowing that the media will respond to the money aspect of it, knowing how to use PR to get uh, things in the headlines that they want in the headlines. Yeah. All right. So in this second part, um, since now we've established that uh, MMOs uh, have real emotional meaning and are important and and they're also virtual um, and all the parallels they have with real life and stuff. The question that we have for you guys, because you guys are writers, is like, why is it important to write about these stories? I don't know, as a, even as opposed to other things, but first of all, why is it important to even record them? Andrew, if you... <laughs> oh, sure. Honestly, I wasn't sure we were recording. Uh, so the reason why I think it's important to record these things is because, I mean, where I come from in, in my youth is, is online video gaming. Like that's, that's where I'm from. Like that, those were a lot of the formative experiences of my youth. Those were the things, those were the people that I looked up to. Those were the experiences that I aspired to. You know, it, I wasn't, uh, I, you know, I wanted to try to get into games that I wasn't in involved in you know a lot of it, it, a lot of games are very difficult to even get involved in it's very difficult to become an EVE online player at all let alone someone of, of repute or renown um, and so i think one of the reasons why it's important to to document these things is because they're just really fun stories that represent the high watermark of what you can do in an online environment and so to me it's, it's partially like letters back home you know here here are the people that are accomplishing these, these are like missives from the front line or so to speak like this is this is what's going on deep in the bowels of the internet um and and it's amazing and it's inspiring and i think people want to read about that because they're also online video gamers and they want to aspire to do really unique and cool things inside of these games and, and I, I i find it really fascinating because I, 
I mean, the, the kids who are growing up these days, they don't see a real, they don't see as firm a distinction between IRL and, and virtual space the way that we do when the way that we were raised. And so I think in a lot of cases, they grow up admiring people who are able to accomplish things in virtual environments and in esports and things like that. And so part of the reason why you want to document these things is because these people are folk heroes of the internet and they represent this really unique vantage point on internet culture and on a unique subculture that was spawned within the internet. Totally. I think for me, it's so interesting because like, Andrew, you come from this, you come at this from sort of this historical um, perspective in, in your writing. And so I think a lot of that, like, um, objectivity is something that you strive for. Accuracy is something you strive for. Not that I don't strive for those things myself <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a journalist. Oh, God. Um, I'm about to be fired. Um, no, but for me, like, what I... Yeah. my sort of body of work is really focused on very personal stories um, or at least the, the things that I'm kind of most proud of and, and kind of think matter the most. It focuses on personal stories. And I think for me and, and why it's so important is like everyone, there's a reason why like parables for a long time were kind of this universal way of communi communicating moral truths um, or just kind of human truths. Uh, and I think that in a lot of ways, games and multiplayer games and the stories that are told within them um, have almost become like the modern parable, which is that like you can tell this story of, uh, you know, you're telling these stories that are like, they sound like mythology. Like there's hero journeys. There's, there's all these things, but they're happening by real people and they're happening in sort of the, the context of this fantasy world or these virtual environments. And I think that there are... Um, truths that can be explained in a game that kind of resonate with people in a way that maybe necessarily wouldn't if they just experienced it in the physical world and being able to explore like the reason why people do things or why people are compelled to devote their lives into leading these alliances helps inform why maybe people in the real world devote their lives to leading any kind of organization right uh, and we've kind of spent this whole talk uh, talking about discussing about um, how the, the experiences and the emotions that you feel in a video game and specifically multiplayer games are no different than sort of physical uh, expressions of those same feelings. And so I think that's really important. Um, and I, 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 to me, it's just fascinating. I love being able to tell those stories and I love being able to connect with people through such an abstract medium because games are very abstract. Um, the second thing I think is so important is that like internet, you know, it used to be something would happen and someone would write it down. Uh, and then that thing would probably exist, hopefully would exist. I mean, there's the burning of the great library of Alexandria or whatever it is. Like there are times where in history, like yeah. knowledge gets lost to the history, but uh, by and large, like a lot of that stuff does progress forward. I think what part of the problem with the internet and sort of the mass white noise of information is that that stuff, those stories are dying. Like they're, they're being lost to time. And I think Andrew can probably speak to this because I remember having a conversation with you being like, I can't even imagine trying to reconstruct the history of Eve Online because so much of it happened in defunct forum posts and um, blogs and websites that no longer exist. And even when I'm doing historical sort of um, writing or reporting and I'm, I'm having to like go you know, go to the internet way back machine and look up old websites and hope that like there's some version of this thing that still exists so I can like point to it very like that's so challenging. And the problem is that the internet just doesn't care for permanence at all. Um, it only cares for what's new and novel. 
And I think that's a huge problem. And so there needs to be an effort in the same way why we need to preserve these games. Um, when EVE Online dies and CCP flips the switch on the server, there needs to be an effort for people to preserve the game code. Uh, even if they have to emulate it and do it you know, against the law, they're, they're, like, you can't just let EVE Online die and then disappear forever because it no longer makes fiscal sense. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's the, the, for me at least, there's the preservationist angle, which is these things have to be preserved because if they don't, we're losing a monumental part of our culture of the 21st century. And the second part is just that these stories resonate with people and they can tell us things about our lives that we might not necessarily understand. Yeah, I think there's absolutely a, an instinct to um, sweep our online lives like under, you know, into a different circle of irrelevance. Like where we just like, we put this, we take this thing that happened to us and we're like, it was irrelevant because it happened in an online environment and it doesn't, that, that's not actually the way that things, things work. I remember the, the one of the things that, that triggered for me when you were talking, Stephen, was I remember some, at one point, I heard somebody talk about uh, C.S. Lewis's writing and why it's all, all, a lot of it carries uh, a pastoral theme. And, and, and they're talking about how it, it, it ties back to a certain uh, part of the, of the subconscious of, the, of his readership, right? Like they all, a lot of them grew up in that pastoral time, even if it wasn't around still at the time that they were reading it, they grew up in that pastoral era of like dreaming of like running through the fields and chasing a butterfly or something like that. It's like, well, we don't by and large have that anymore in a lot of cases. A lot of people don't grow up in that setting. And a lot of the times that the setting they did grow up in was online environments. Like uh, for a lot of us, we grew up, we spent our adolescent years, you know, like running across the bridge into Stormwind to go check the auction house and, uh, and turn in our quests and stuff like that. And like, those are a lot of our formative memories. And so I think these stories resonate for people and partially because they hearken back to a time in which they were experiencing those things. And it harkens back to something true in them that was formed uh, during those experiences. So we, they, you're saying not only that we have good reasons to record some of this history, but there are emotional reasons as well, like, like that. For, for me, it's like that. I hear, I read these old stories from the first volume of your book, Andrew, and I feel like these are uh, special lost moments. It rem it's the same feeling uh, when at the end of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the King, where there's a scene where Arwen Evenstar has given up her spot on the ship at the Grey Havens to sail into the West. And, the El and she gives it to the ring bearer, which ends up being a loophole because more than one person was the ring bearer and they each get to get a spot on the boat pretty cool but uh, <laughs> the elves are going away and they're leaving and and there's something magical about them and it's being taken out of middle earth and they're they're sailing away into the inaccessible west and that's how i feel about some of the old history of eve disappearing and let's at least let's remember it somehow so it's not completely gone from our memories yeah, absolutely. I think that there is a sense in, in a lot of the older stories that I've written about and that I've talked to people about, there is a sense of Eve as like a half-remembered dream. That a lot of this stuff happened so long ago and there are, there are specific moments that are tied very acutely in memory and in time, but the rest of it is all foggy and hazy and it has the air of like, I remember, like you're remembering a dream, like I remember there was a cloaked figure there, I don't remember exactly what was going on, it was all foggy, but I remember these very specific things and it, and it affected me. Um, 
Yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating thing. I'm thinking about it because I'm also like, you know, Andrew, you certainly have this instinct. I feel like I can relate to you in that I have this instinct of well of wanting to sort of like, for whatever weird reason, we're just wired where we're like, someone needs to write this down. <laughs> like This thing has happened. Someone is, are you writing it down? Do you have a pen? Because if not, I'll get my pen out and I'll write this down. Yeah, like it's really hard and it's frustrating and boring I'll, like most of the time, but I'm going to do it because at the end of it, you end up with something really amazing. Right. And what's so funny is we were saying like, okay, this we're doing this because this is happening and it's going away and it's disappearing. And what first kind of sparked this thought was when you said um, for sort of people our generation, they might not have the feeling of, you know, running around on their grandfather's farm, but they might have sort of this powerful nostalgia for is running back and forth across the bridge to Stormwind. Um, and what kind of went through my mind is like, oh, that's interesting because the, the bridge to Stormwind has now changed. Like they've updated the game, they've updated the models, they've even in, in a lot of ways like changed the physical geography of World of Warcraft to make it sort of more modern and because of the story and everything like that. Um, and that old version is now gone, but that's actually like just really no different than any sort of thing phenomenon we experience in the real world, which is like, I go back to my hometown and there it is vastly different and it is alien to me and it freaks me out when I go there and I see like a Walmart where there used to be like the mom and pop like boutique and stuff like that. And, you know, it's funny that I have this instinct to like jot down the, the digital memories of people, but I'm like, is anyone like writing down like the physical memories of my hometown? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm mostly just like, blabbering out loud right now no, but I, I just mean, I think that's absolutely true and, I, and one of the things that I've been thinking about this whole time is uh, the, the reason that's most acute for me for why we should uh, document things like this you should um, try to figure out what is the personal effect of what comes out of a, a grand game like EVE Online the part of the reason for me is we may not always have games of this scale it's not necessarily a given that online games will continue to overmatch the scale of things that have been happening. If the business model isn't there for whatever reason or the technology isn't there for people to create these specific kinds of environments um, like Eve, we may not have stories like this come out anymore. And like, you, you think of, about something like the moon landing or something like that, where we had a, a tremendous technology at one time and then we kind of like let it, let, it, let it wither for quite a while to the point where we probably could not go to the moon right now. And like that, that's not to say any, I know anything about rocket science. I don't know if that's necessarily even true. It's the point is to try to make an analogy about the fact that it's not a given that we will always accelerate beyond this. And in order to make the case that we should accelerate beyond this and explore new regions of online territory uh, of new types of experience and give gamers new tools and new types of like mass experience the way Eve does where you're dealing with thousands of people all at once. Um, the only way that you can do that is write down the story and show a developer the way that you did Camaros, say this is what it's like to actually be there. And this is what you can create for your players if you make this giant convoluted system of gameplay and it'll take you five years and a hundred people to do it. But at the end of it, you, your players may spontaneously create a, a tale that rivals the Lord of the Rings on their own and they'll have lived it themselves. Right. And, and that's worth doing. And, and so like, that's part of the reason why I do what I do, which is to convince people that this type of gameplay is worth creating and worth expanding upon. Now, both of you are writers uh, professionally. I'm a writer amateurly. Um, so I wrote for Eve News 24 
at first just to break in. And my story uh, that I, I told when I was speaking in Las Vegas was that I wrote an article that was roughly personal because I was going through it. And so it was, I felt like my alliance was being contaminated by trolls and it was wrecking the place. And sure enough, it did. And I wrote it and I put it out there as kind of a fuck you back to the guys that were ruining it because I didn't have a voice inside of it. Uh, or I was banned from the banned from the forums for complaining against the trolls. So I was banned. So then that was my outlet to put it on the news out there and to say, hey, this is happening. And it's too, it's too bad that this alliance is wrestling for its soul. And I'm a terrible writer structurally, but there's a lot of emotion there. And there was this guy that wrote back, hey, that was a good read. I'm sitting here in London at a cafe. Thanks you know, for that. And it was like, wow, I, I resonated with that guy. And he like, and he resonated back. And it's kind of like we're um, feeding off that. And then another guy would say like, oh, I'm in a I'm in Florida on the beach. <laughs> that was a great read. And so it kept going of like, it, we're sending signals to one another about something that we have in common. Um, and that led to a lot more writing. And that writing, uh, I did 100 articles for Evening News 24. I did like the brave story and um, uh, the odyssey of Eve Vegas and all these like really cool stories. And then switched over to, at the time, the Matani.com and wrote for them and wrote the war against uh, the war between Iwan Isk and SMA, which was a huge piece. Uh, we did a, a piece on scandals for, uh, well, there was this, this guy that was honey, honey, what's it called? Not honey potting, but tricking, tricking guys to give him money because he posed as a female. I forget what that's called. Uh, and he was very successful in the past in real life doing it to other people. And we caught him trying to do it to Eve and he was about to get away with it because people were starting to send him real money. And so we, we investigated that and blew that down. So um, the point is, it was all written. All this stuff was written. So what is it about writing that somehow is, um, is what you guys do, as opposed to streaming it or doing talk shows or that kind of stuff? Well, I think writing right now is just, it has the historical significance. And so it's, it's coasting on that, which is that writing has been traditionally the way we make a thing permanent, which is that we mark it onto something physical and then it stays there. Um, I think streaming and podcasting, I mean, podcasting especially, or just any kind of audio recording, we are quickly seeing is becoming another de facto way of um, storytelling and it's great because it it captures all of the power of oral storytelling which was another way of um, passing information along historically you know generations would tell their their myths and their their creation myths to their children they would get passed along but then they get adapted and changed and now we're kind of doing that with like a the podcasting is just oral storytelling um, in, in some really cool fascinating ways so I think like for <laughs> at least for me I don't know if it's anything maybe Andrew or, or Rick has like a better answer to this. I don't think it's anything necessarily mystical or like incredible. I think it's just like, well, writing's what we've always done. <laughs> so well, I, I actually disagree. I think there is a mystical quality to it in a, in a certain sense, because, you know, it, it's kind of the same effect where like, if you ran out into a, a battlefield with a cell phone and tried to live stream that war, um, you wouldn't do a very good job. You would like probably see the grass. 
and right. like maybe a couple of people. Um, but if you were to zoom out and take in all of these stories and distill all of those stories into a coherent story, um, then you can take you can take a perspective that nobody, no individual person has. And so when you write all that down, I mean, I guess you could deliver it in a prepared statement and on a teleprompter or something like that and tell the story orally. So the written part of it not, isn't necessarily super important, but it's the process of, of taking in all those different perspectives and providing a, a perspective that is above all of those perspectives that no individual actually lives through. You know, nobody, nobody ever actually experienced the events that happened in Empires of Eve. They were somewhere in there and experienced some small perspective that's tucked inside there. Um, but nobody experienced all of this stuff in this order, in this way. Um, and, and so, like, storytelling gives you that opportunity to, to tell a story that doesn't exist but is factually founded. Um, and that sums up thousands, can sum, sum up thousands or millions of people's stories. So you, I'm actually super glad you said that because you're absolutely right. Yeah. No, <laughs> I take back what I said. <laughs> a big part, you didn't want to be elitist, I get it, but it is, it is an, an art form because it's not the writing, the writing or the grammar, it's the filtration and the gathering of the story and the prioritizing of what's important in it. And I think that's where the artistry is in it. And you guys are both really good at that is bringing out, bringing out the interest part. Yeah, I mean, and I think that Eve is a, is a game that lends itself particularly well to being written about um, because the moment-to-moment the -moment passage of time is quite slow um, and the individual experience of the game is quite slow. Um, and it takes someone zooming out and telling a story that takes place over years um, and involves lots of different people to actually get at what those people are seeing from their perspective. The reason why they're there is because they see this big thing happening, but they don't really know exactly how to describe it. Um, and, and the writing part to me is, is, is describing what's in the center of everybody's perspectives, like what, what universe is being created at the confluence of everybody's imagination um, and what did it feel like to be connected to that, to that, like, orb of knowledge <laughs> yeah even ccp uh Fozier, josh says uh you know nobody knows eve like nobody has it all it's it's disseminated between thousands and thousands of people uh, everybody has a piece of the puzzle but nobody has the whole thing the whole understanding of it or the whole history of it and stuff um and so that yeah well I think writing is like, is the premier way to take in uh, EVE Online. I've watched a lot of streams. I do a talk show and I, I always feel like I want to get back to writing, even though I do all this other stuff because it just time per permits it a little bit easier and stuff. And it's nice to have uh, the feedback of a live audience and that kind of stuff. But I, it's weird. It's like my dad moved here from Mexico. I was born here, but he moved here and, it, and he kept saying his whole life, like, I want to go back to Mexico at some point. Even though he didn't make it, he, he died here. But there's always that romanticism of going back to that, you know, the medium or that represented something to you. Right. I think with Eve Online, it, it's in a, in a large part of it is that uh, it's almost practical in a way, which is that Eve is more than any other game. Eve is very abstract and it just doesn't loan itself well to, to watching. So like, you know, people, yeah. when we, when a big battle's happening and I'll post something on PC Gamer being like, watch this live stream. It, usually it's yours live stream is actually David, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, this live stream and watch this Keepstar get exploded, right? And people tune in and if they don't know what EVE Online is, they'll tune in and they'll just be like, I am watching a million red dots 
go, moving at like one tenth their usual speed, doing nothing perceivable or understandable or appreciable. Um, and and that abstraction, yeah, and then they're like, what is this? Eve is so boring. Uh, but then it's so funny because then those same people will respond to like a, a feature that I write on profiling someone or covering that same battle, but explaining the battle and explaining sort of the human element of that battle. And that's when it, the gears start clicking. And so I think you're right, like your instinct to kind of want to go back to writing about Eve, I think is very natural because I think writing is probably the best medium to talk about Eve. <laughs> Writing has an advantage too that you can do it after the fact. Uh, if you didn't, if a moment happens in Eve and you didn't realize it was going to be a moment till it ended, you didn't record it because you can't record everything. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Going back to the Casino War slash World War B, <laughs> and uh, I'm trying trying to be neutral here to some degree, but. There, there was a moment, there were some meetings that I was participating in with the leadership of Circle of Two. And I didn't know it would be meaningful until Circle of Two switched sides. So there, there was a, you know, a dark shadowy figure meeting. When it's, you know, the, it was Gig X and Da Vinci and myself in a conversation and, uh, and, uh, you know, we're discussing things very broadly and I'm not picking up on hints. And then, uh, but, but we were talking about where to move our staging system. And then there was leaving them and driving over to a hotel downtown where the Matani happened to be in town and joining him at a hotel bar and sitting at a high tap table for a glass of wine and a conversation and, you know, Giggs thinks we should do this. And, uh, you know, he, how many times do you want to move your staging system in a period of three months? You know, why don't you think about this and that? And then uh, the next day driving to have lunch with the leader of Get Off My Lawn and uh, discussing what our options were. And I didn't realize these moments were going to be as poignant and meaningful as they until co2 flip sides oh, oh huh. okay now i get it now you so, put it together and now your options are right about it or just lose those moments well that's funny because uh you said both titles to a war and this is kind of funny and maybe it's only eve online i don't know but because there's such huge conflicts because they have a united history um it seemed to me that, well, first of all, it seemed to me that people are now very, very impatient to name a thing, to give it a, to give it a name of some sort. And I don't know what that's about. Maybe we can discuss that. But a long time ago, it didn't seem like people were in such a rush to name something. So that's a contrast between back then and now. However, the guys that I talked to, like Vince Draken, and, you know, the heavy hitters that are actually running these wars are not really in a, in a rush to name it. Maybe they're more old school or not. So it's kind of like there's a different party that's in a rush to name it, not the participants so much. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, to a certain extent, it has become clear to the community that there is a psychological value in being first and that there is um, a, a great 
propaganda value in getting to title the actual conflict. You know, we were kind of joking between air about how I accidentally tripped up when I introduced myself. And I, I said that when I was talking about the second volume of my book, that it would go all the way up to World War B. And I just sort of blurted that out on accident because I wasn't, I haven't gotten to that era of the research exactly yet. And I, I, I'm not steeped in the importance of clarifying what I'm talking about and that I'm talking about an event that does not have a solid name and which is there's an ongoing debate about what you should call it at this point you should there probably the appropriate name would be the casino war slash world war b that's what everybody calls it and and, and knows about it as you, you could probably settle that <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i mean that that makes that makes a lot of sense to me and the the way that i've kind of opted to deal with that particular controversy, because I kind of sat down when I was deciding um, what kind of language I was going to use in my Kickstarter, I was using the same sort of logic, which was like, well, what am I going to say it goes all the way up to? I have to talk about what it's going to go up to, and I need to use a word to communicate what I'm talking about, but I have to choose my words very carefully because I'm trying to you know, do something that is non-biased. I'm trying to do something that provides a service to all different members of the EVE Online community, regardless of which, which side they happen to play for. Um, and, and it was in that moment where I was thinking about it, about how I was going to choose to do that. I was like, my God, I just should explain to the reader what I'm going through right now. Like what could be more fascinating than explaining to them that there are, there are camps within this game who will be very upset based on which name I choose to use and that there might be an argument based on that and that it could last for hours. And, you know, it's been, this, this debate's been raging for months and there's still no settled side because both sides are so voracious in their defense of, of both of these sides. And now we're at this kind of stalemate uh, where it makes sense to call it something that's hyphenated. Uh, and I don't know that for sure. I will probably I will have to make up my mind when I when I really sit down and get my hands in the meat of the research and, and talk to everybody and see how they really feel about this um, to kind of hopefully get a behind the scenes look at like maybe there's one side who's like, you know, we don't actually care about whether or not it's called that we're just trying to screw with the Imperium or something like that. Like that 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 to me makes an impact. But and I, I hope to be able to find something something non-biased to be able to get above that. Uh, that that fracas and good luck. Communi communicate without without getting someone upset. What's so fascinating to me about this conversation, and not to like, I feel like I've been like trying to hammer this point home, as if like people are listening to this right now and being like, I still don't get what they're talking about. <laughs> but like <laughs> the the parallels that exist between things that can happen in a virtual world and things that happen in the real world, um, it's fascinating to me that we're having this big conversation about like, what do we call this war? that happened most recently in EVE. And uh, I'm thinking in my head, like, when did people get together and start calling it World War II? Because certainly when they were living through it, I can't imagine, and I, I'm not a historian, but like, it wouldn't surprise me that like at the outset of World War II, people weren't calling it World War II because it wasn't a world war yet. It was only in retrospect, once all of sort of the pieces fell together, that I think the scope and the magnitude of it started to make sense. Um, and I think, you know, for all we know, there was probably like, you could go and find newspaper headlines of people calling it like, I don't know, some sort of like highly propagandized name because that's the power of owning that title, right? And yeah, Andrew, you made an excellent point, which is that like naming these things gives power. One of the interesting wrinkles with you online is that like, you know, there's that famous quote, like history is written by the victor. 
right? And so when you, when you win a war, you almost get to name it <laughs> because that's part of the thing that you won. But in EVA, it doesn't happen because nobody ever really wins a war. Um, those people by and large still exist. They still have an opportunity to rebuild because um, the weird fascinating thing about EVA Online is it's actually kind of a, a, a game about immortals constantly warring over nothing. And <laughs> the only way that you <laughs> really like, yeah, the only way you really win in EVE Online is to force your enemy to become so bored that they stop putting up a fight, like you erode their morale. And so like, that's not, that's a parallel that doesn't exist in the real world because you can very easily just murder the enemy, the other side, and then there's no one to dispute your version of the truth. Or you um, humiliate them out uh, when yeah. they each quit and leave. But it, you know what? Like those things are like at the end of the day, like eroding someone's morale, uh, humiliating other. And I'm talking about in within sort of the context of YouTube online. Um, those things are only so effective, and we've seen that time and time again. Which is like these an alliance is dealt what is in Eve terms considered a total mortal blow, and six months later they're back up. They are reformed, they're retaking space. And even if they're not six months later back up, they're still on subreddit threads, um, shit talking <laughs> yeah. the victors and you know, uh, still fighting for their version of the truth. And that'll never end unless they just give up and stop going to the, to the, to the forum. Well, one of, one of the powers, I mean, we have to say it, like wars and all kinds of societal things are named by the people who write. Uh, so, and that seems to be one of the powers that you guys have. Like if Andrew were to say it's World War B, like that's a huge advantage to the people who supported that name and a huge disadvantage because he is such a figure uh, and he's codifying it in this volume and stuff. That's, do you guys feel responsibility for that kind of power? Absolutely. I mean, I personally do. I can't, I can't speak for Stephen, but um, I'm, I'm pulling up a quote I have right here that I just saw. I, I think it came from one of the Dune books. Um, and it literally says, historians exercise great power and some of them know it. They change the, pa they change the past, thus they change the future. Um, and I, like, I'm thinking about including that in, in the book as just sort of a nod to like, look, I know my role here and that my role here has a certain weight and a certain power. And I want to at least confess that to the reader so that they understand the position that I'm in and that they can hopefully, if there is any, any implicit bias in the way that I, rec I report stories or in the way that I choose to tell the story, maybe I dramatize something or make someone out to be worse than they were because I thought it made for a really good villain on accident or something like that. That's not stuff that I do on purpose, but there are temptations in storytelling to put someone into uh, an archetype in order to push the narrative along, things like that that can come up when you're trying to write something on a, on a huge scale. Um, and I like to try to give the reader those, the keys to unlock my personal biases. So teach them about what it's like to be in my position and the powers that, that I implicitly have because you know, right now I'm the only person who has sat down and, and decided to do the work of writing all of this down from moment one to moment Z or moment A to moment Z. Um, that 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 exclusion, that that fact that I'm the only one who gets to have a voice there is a tremendous responsibility, and I feel a, a need to help the reader defang the biases that I, as a human being, naturally have. Yeah, I think Andrew has like a, I'm, I think that's a very noble way of looking at it. Um, 
I certainly aspire to that too. I think if you go back and read any of my articles covering that war, I called it World War B in every single one of them. And I'm not sure if I even thought to like consider the alternative uh, because that's what it seemed like. And maybe, you know, this is me being honest, like brutally honest here. Uh, I'm kind of like, I need to, uh, you know, there's, it was a learning opportunity of, of being like, um, taking the time to really just understand the perspectives at play and making and, and analyzing your own inherent biases. And so for me, when I saw what felt like the entire galaxy rising up to take on this, this force that they had branded as like Maleficent, uh, it was easy to sort of fall into that, that to, to buy into that narrative um, and call it World War B. It honestly didn't feel like until a year ago that really the casino war stuff started actually gaining traction too. Um, but that's like kind of a whole other conversation. But yeah, no, certainly like there's a huge responsibility there. Um, and you have to be very careful about how those types of things can um, give a lot of weight and gravity. I mean, there's like the um, observer phenomenon, which is like some quantum mechanics term that I'm not going to pretend to understand very well. But the idea of observing something fundamentally also alters it at the same time. And I, a part of me, as much as I want to strive for sort of objectivity and everything like that in my reporting, especially in my reporting, not in my feature right, well, always in my feature writing, but especially my reporting, I, I strive really hard to get the facts right. I also kind of embrace the idea that by merely reporting on this, I'm going to change events. And I think we've seen that in EVE Online in really clever ways like Pro God Legends Million Dollar War Gambit was him fundamentally understanding that if he gets sort of enough observers to look at this thing, he stands a really good chance of changing the outcome of it. And it was kind of a huge tragedy that it didn't work out that way. Because if it did, it would have been one of the greatest uh, tricks ever played in a, in a virtual world. Um, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, that was the, the, the publicity that came from that was, was basically uh, it, it turned it, I, I was doing live broadcasts for that fight and we had 11,000 people watching it. Uh, so definitely some, it, it hit a nerve in other places too. I think there were like 10,000 people that were a part of that fight uh, in one way or another around that theater. So yeah, it just, the, the game just couldn't handle 10,000 people wanting to fight each other. We're not yeah. the, Which is a shame because that really could have been like a flashpoint life-changing moment for EVE Online if that battle hadn't gone the way that it had. Um, and uh, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. To me, the stuff like that though is, is it, what it does to me is it makes me uh, like kind of faint thinking about the future of online games and online worlds and stuff like that. Thinking about, you know, I mean, all this stuff came from, from a few dots on a screen like 35 years ago. It's not that long of a period of time. And it's really tempting to wonder, you know, if we're able to continue advancing this technology and, and playing around with these types of experiences, what might we be able to do in, in 35 years? It doesn't strike me as, it doesn't strike me as strange at all to wonder if we could have a game like No Man's Sky at the scale of EVE, but that like streamers could like, play at the same time and invite their audiences in to come and like be part of things. Like there's, there's all these different things that are happening right now with gaming technology and with gaming experiences in Eve that it, it's, it's humbling, humbling to consider what we might be able to achieve in the medium 
if, if this is stuck with, if, if people really keep pushing this and trying to explore uh, the frontier of what's really happening here. And like fights like that, when people see that, it's so, it's inspiring to everybody. And that's why people show up, even though there's not much happening on the screen is because they can feel the gravity of it. Uh, and, and that to me is just, again, right. Yeah. One of the things I think is so cool, and this kind of relates to what we were talking about, David, when you're asking us about like, why, why write this stuff down? Um, something that I kind of didn't get around to saying, but I, I wanted to bring up was also this feeling that like, um, in the same way that like humans look back, like we look back on our history and there's like missing links in our, in our growth and our evolution as a species. Um, I feel like right now where we're at as a society and a culture and maybe this sounds like so stupidly altruistic, but I, I really believe this, that like where we are right now is in, we're one of those missing links or we could stand the chance of being one of those missing links and that we are transitioning from sort of this analog pre-internet society into this digital society and we haven't fully sort of stepped into that evolution yet. Like what Andrew is describing can be even taken great, like, you know, you can read some of the most imaginative science fiction, and I feel like it sort of grasps at some of these truths that we could be seeing in the next hundred years, which is, what's it like when people play these games full time? What's it like when these experiences become not such an abstract dots on a screen, but they are like visceral lived in experiences of people fighting in cockpits and like shooting one another and living out these battles in a very real way um, as sort of technology progresses. And I think what's really important and sort of my conviction and wanting to write as much of sort of our, I want to write reflections of our sort of culture as it exists right now is because I think it's going to be important for people to look back on this time, which is like between, you know, pre-internet and post-internet and this, this era we're in right now is people are struggling with how to adapt to social media. And we're seeing things like entire elections being swayed because of social media and internet narratives and stuff like that. And it's all like a lot of growing pains. And I think it's going to be really useful uh, to sort of have as much of this information as possible written down so we can study it and understand something about ourselves. Anyway, that like got really no, 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 <laughs> out that's of really, control. No, because ga gaming is uh, social media, isn't it? I mean, you have community sure. plus content. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, you, there's, there's an, a, a very real argument to be made that Twitter is basically just a multi-user dungeon um, <laughs> on the grandest scale possible that like all the world's leaders are now playing at the same time. And it's, I, I, again, like I, I know that this is just sort of me being fanciful and having fun thinking about all of this, but I don't think it's that strange to consider a future in which a social network that is much more sophisticated, that is an actual virtual environment, might have these people acting out and playing inside those uh, environments instead of, you know, Twitter. It sounds like a Black Mirror episode, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> there are great things inside of Black Mirror episodes. We just need to <laughs> and cut out the bad parts. Learn from Black, from Black Mirror. Yeah. There are some dark things there for sure. Yeah. All right, um, so you're going to handle the, the naming of things. You're going to give people insight into the complexity of even naming a thing, which is, is very interesting that you have to deal with that. Um, and then for me, um, where I'm a player of the game, right? Like I actually have a side I've picked and I'm, you know, I work for, Carneros is a player of the game. We both kind of work in this media. How do we exercise responsibility? Because we have, the, we're the gateway to legacy, right? I mean, uh, Stephen and Andrew are much more the gateway to legacy because they, they codify it in a neutral way, which gives it a lot of legitimacy and everything else. But 
uh, Carneros, my friend, you and I, you know, we also, we pick who we get to name and talk about on the show that people listen to. Discussions where we try to pick balanced sets of guests that are compatible with each other that can be set on the stage at the same time that will share multiple viewpoints of a situation um, and one won't stomp on the other perhaps and, and it's it's funny and and we're on opposite sides of this conflict and we and we bring our biases with us to the discussion and we're also friends with each other you know, it's it's a it's an interesting mix yeah, I mean, honestly, Matterall, you do an amazing job with these. Like, you, you, you covering, like, and, and Imperium News, honestly, just does a really great job. And the Twitch streams that you all do are, are the things that I watch when, when this stuff is all actually happening. You know, like, I was in your Twitch audience just the other day uh, for, for the big fight that went down. And, and so, like, I, I watch the things that you all do, and it's very clear that you take a lot of pride in it, and you actually do approach this from a, a serious perspective and trying to do justice to what's happening here. And, and it's clear that you all experience a certain sense of responsibility to do this correctly. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's all there is to it. I think well, that, that you all actually do a, a, a really good job, and I follow the stuff that you do. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Uh, the, from my perspective, it's, it's, I've given way to know that I, I can't do what you do and be above it all. Because when you speak to Eve, you're speaking to the, the totality of it. Both you guys do. Um, uh, when I write, I've already given in that I'm going to be considered somebody with a biased point of view, even though I, I've always written sometimes more critical of my own side than the opposite side. And it goes back and forth. But the point that I made in, in an article about bias a while ago was that um, you're going to go left and then you're going to go right and then you're going to go right again and then you're going to go left. And it's going to be like this back and forth. But if you pull out far enough to get perspective on the range, the body of work, all the hundreds of articles I've written, it looks like a straight line because, you know, you didn't continue to go in one direction or another yeah i mean this is kind of like a, a conversation that I, honestly i'm not even sure if i'm like equipped to uh to talk about but what i will say is like i don't think people talk about bias like it's this dirty awful thing and because like andrew and i kind of come from this reporting background there's sort of this need to not have bias or to eliminate it as much as humanly possible but i think from at least like your perspective and for most players perspective like that bias is also insanely useful it is you know even in a historical context it is very important that we have um you know like books from people who who supported uh like bad regimes throughout history you know it's important that we have this perspective into both sides even if we disagree with it for a variety of reasons it's very valuable and so i think people need to not be afraid of their bias so much and and especially if they're just average common you know civilians for lack of a better word if they're not like part of the media who have sort of a responsibility um own that bias man like you know <laughs> yeah i mean absolutely like owning your bias is a lot less biased than not owning your bias. So I right? like pretending you don't have a bias, <laughs> yeah, just being yeah. ignorant of your biases. And so like, I, I mean, I, that's why I, what I do in my work is I really try to just be like, try to identify moments where I do have bias and just sort of back up and be like, 
okay, let's take a moment to unpack this. I am this person and I have come at it from this perspective and I had this interaction with this person and that might color my perspective. You can kind of decide on your own. And that's really all that, all that you can do because your reader comes to it with their own biases and they're reading things. That, I mean, like when you've just written words on a page, there's all kinds of levels of interpretation that people can do about what you've actually said with those words and what you meant with those words. And so pretending that you have like a one-on-one -on -one, like mind meld situation with your with all of your readers is just absurd to begin with. And so <laughs> right. I just try to pack as much information about about true things, about what's true, about my perspective, and about what I'm trying to say here, to hopefully give the reader enough vectors of, of approach to, to, to grapple with this all and understand my place in the story. Yeah. The reality is, is nobody grocks shit. Like, everything, <laughs> <laughs> nobody truly understands anybody. Uh, they just think they do. And I think, yeah, you know, like what you're saying is like, oh, you know, this article goes this way and this article goes the other way. I'm critical here and I'm supportive here. But if you look at the grand scheme of things, it's a straight line. I think, you know what, screw it. If, even if it's not a straight line, who cares? That is perfectly allowed and it's valuable. And it's just as important to understanding the context of a thing as having sort of the ob like the objective unbiased accounts like you know when we look back on history it's important that we have sort of historian perspective but it's also important that we have the human perspective um it's important to have you know you mean the, the smallest people the smaller perspective yeah like the in the moment perspective it's important like you know what i mean yeah 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 our, our understanding of history and i mean this is something we've talked about a lot, but our, our understanding of history is significantly diminished if we only have the objective perspective. If all we ever had was textbooks on World War II, we wouldn't understand World War II that well. But because we have an insane wealth of um, literature written by like Jewish people who survived the Holocaust, that gives us a profound perspective that we might never have anyway. And that is an inherently biased work, <laughs> right? Like, um, there's going to be biases there, but like, it's important that we embrace those biases. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you're somebody who is writing for a media outlet and you think that you don't have any biases, consider that you're essentially writing on a type like on a typewriter above like a crowd of a hundred thousand people who have all are all waiting to see what you type. And and if you think that that doesn't affect what you decide to write, you're not paying enough attention to yourself um, because like knowing that all of those people will read it and form judgments about it and um, you know, that they want you to say certain things that influences uh, what you ultimately decide to write. Um, and, and so it's such a, a tempest of emotion and of bias that there's trying to get through it without bias. It's, it's a fool's errand. Alliance yeah. leader in Eve has this experience a little bit too. If you send an Eve mail out to your entire alliance, if you send like a global one to the whole group, you have to write it at the same time, simultaneously to two audiences. So you have to write what you want to say to your people and what you want to say to the hostels that are following your narrative through spies in your organization. So you have to write something that will feed group A without feeding group B. And there's a certain um, uh, balance to what you can write uh, and you, at a certain point at which you can't give any more detail, but you want to, you want to hook in group A without supplying morsels to group B. 
And, uh, and the, the trick is to keep an eye. And the one thing that helps me do that the most was media training from video game business days for how to talk to press. I love how that. On mission, how to stay on message and how to, how to you know, the, those lessons and those classes is the thing that helps me write those things. Leverage in your real life. That's, <laughs> that's what makes what else can you do? <laughs> well, awesome. Is there anything that's on your mind that you want to yeah, say? We've covered a, a really bizarre range of topics. Like, <laughs> the fact that we have gone from talking about, like earlier, we were talking about having sex in, yes. in World of Warcraft. And yeah. then this as ended a furry. With, yeah, as as a furry, and then this ended with a very like weird conversation about the role of bias in historical reporting. So I don't even know. Uh, well, I have nothing left. To say. <laughs> You're done, right? Like, yeah, awesome. <laughs> we've gone the range of tangents. But the the reason that we brought up this last part is because there's a whole generation built on top of generation of writers and performers, and now streamers are kind of the newer thing that are all kind of taking cues from one another on how to behave and what's important for somebody to write. Um, I, I had a very specific instance where I wrote about bias because it was very, it was during uh, Casino War, World War B that I wrote that because um, I belong to both. I belong to the one side in the game and I'm writing for the other side in real life. And so I was right in the middle. Um, but so, you know, people are still writing about wanting to be the news service that is unbiased, like, and then they, they tackle it in different ways and everybody's very smart about it, but it's still a thing like where I'm, I don't care that much about the bias. I care about a good story, except that I don't want to overrepresent my position as a player. That's, a, that's the one thing that I try to like rein in to make sure that people don't think that I'm speaking for more people than I actually speak for. But I think it's important because, of, because it's constantly teaching the next generation of people who are going to be writers and stuff like, you know, what to worry about, what not to worry about. But it's been another great hour of, you know, talking to you guys. Thank you very much for giving up so much of your time. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having us and for putting this together. Like, I really enjoyed the conversation. And, and honestly, like, like I said, you guys do a great job. And, and I am... Uh, like I've been in daily news reporting and I've done journalism work and I've done the things that you all do for free. Uh, I've done that as a job and it was hard and it was like burned me out and like made me not want to be a part of journalism ever again and stuff like that. And so like when I see the kind of things that you all do where you're, you know, covering, covering an eight hour fight or something like that, or you're, you're trying to untangle all of these, these stories for people in a way that's, that's, if it's not free of bias, is like relatively responsible. Um, I think that's really noble. I think it's really difficult. And um, and anyways, this has been a really great conversation. I'm happy to be a part oh, of man. it. Thanks. By the way, if I was paid for doing this, I probably would have quit a long time ago. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. As soon as you label it a job and money, you realize like, what the heck am I doing? But it's that... <laughs> It's that dedication to not let your guys down kind of thing. I saw this great thing on Twitter today, which was, you know, that saying like, oh, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And it was that written out on a wall and then someone crossed it out 
uh, the, the second half of that. So it said, if you do what you love, you kind of just work all the time is what they wrote <laughs> underneath it. And I was like, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, awesome. Thank you very much, Andrew Groen, Stephen Messner, and Rick Carneros. Uh, this was a great couple hours talking with you guys. We'll do it again sometime. I really like that. After your book comes out, we're all looking forward to it. Yeah. I really like that. Thank you. I'm uh, hard at work on it. It's going to be uh, many months of kind of like nose down uh, interviewing and, and writing down trash and feeling a lot of feelings about myself and then trying to make it into a book that's actually worth reading. And so it's going to be a long six months, but I'm really excited about it. It's, it's been extremely fun so far. Yeah. Well, it's highly anticipated. Uh, highly anticipated. Well, Thanks, thank you man. guys. Very much appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, we'll do this again sometime and we'll see you next time. Andrew, I wanted to ask you, I, th I, think, I think I've placed this. Check what your input is because I have a feeling maybe it's your computer. I had the same idea too. So yeah. I have a really strong feeling that you're not recording through your microphone. You're recording through your webcam's microphone. Yeah. Oh, right that way. Check and see. It's still on. I don't know it was that bad. Yeah, I would have tinkered with it. It's yeah. it's not terrible. Yeah, yeah but it's just, I can see your microphone, and I'm like, there's no way that microphone has that sound. Well, quality. I turned it. I turned it way low um, because it seemed like it was super high before. Let's see what the input is set to. Yeah, see, see what it's... Well, I tinkered with that at first. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me see. Oh, okay. So maybe yeah, it is... You're right. <laughs> really? Switch it to your microphone. Yeah, let's see how great you sound. Ah, yeah, you sound... <laughs> All right, reload it. Let's do the show again. Oh, my God. That's totally... <laughs> as soon as... You... I should have said something. I totally forgot halfway through the show. But as soon as you were doing your intro, Andrew, I was like... It dawned on me, and I was like... Because that's happened to me before, too. And I was like, oh, my God, it's using his webcam audio. And then I almost wanted to just blurt something out in the middle of the podcast, and I should have, because then we could have fixed this whole thing. And then I just was like... Andrew, I, now get closer to Mike. Let's see if you're louder. Hey, Metterall, what's going on? That's oh, perfect. It's like, it's like studio. I'm sorry. I should have said something. My bad. This microphone was good. Well, you have to turn I it know. up. Now you have yeah, to turn it no, up. It's, it's very quiet. But yeah, I was like, there is no way that you're... Your, that kind of microphone has that everything. I'm so bad. <laughs> I should I'm have sorry, said. I, I, I really wish that I had, I had caught that. I didn't realize it was going to switch the inputs when I plugged it in uh, to do the video stuff. Sorry, Metterall. It doesn't sound that bad, though. Actually, you were still you were still audible. Uh, but next time we do it, definitely, we'll have like a yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have, we, we can do it again relatively soon too. I don't mind making the time. We can come out and talk whenever you want. Okay. Yeah. Not whenever you want. Wait, let me take that back. <laughs> I'm yeah. a relatively solitary person and I don't talk to people that often. So <laughs> with that in mind, anytime, okay. anytime. Right. We'll respect anytime it. within that, within that confine. We'll respect it. Yeah. <laughs>